Welcome to Uncover Untapped Markets. I'm your host, Junie Baptiste Batavien, or call me Junie. I'm the visionary and problem solver that gets people to say, I didn't think about that, and give you a new perspective into how we can design products that benefit all. Uncover Untapped Markets illuminates the unique struggles and desires of product consumers and tech users for business leaders. As the founder and CEO of Propel Innovations, a boutique of inclusive design research giving businesses a competitive edge, we've asked ourselves, why aren't we targeting the multifaceted nature of people to build products that are adaptable? And business leaders have asked us, why is it important to design inclusively? Get ready to dive into a podcast that unveils the raw and emotional stories of people who have felt frustrated with products that just don't get it as we explore how meeting unique needs becomes the secret weapon for your business's success. We'll walk you through their journeys, shedding light on the struggles they face and the unique needs they have. This podcast is your gateway to understanding why designing products with those often overlooked is not only a smart business move, but also a way to make a positive impact while unlocking a competitive edge that your business truly deserves. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, can you give us a bit of background about the multi-facets that you belong to? Yep. So the first one I like to um, introduce myself as um, is a Lurcha Pinabi Aranda person from Central Australia. Um, so I come from, and my family come from a tiny remote Indigenous community about 250 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs um, called Papanya or Warumpi. Um, and that's that's important to me to identify that way um, just because it plays a pivotal, pivotal role in how I kind of think about the world and um, my relationships. Um, in addition to that, I am a software developer, um, a technologist. <laughs> Hold on. Um, <laughs> quote unquote yep um i am also a technology consultant on a play but i'm also writing bits of it um so that's kind of a morphing um kind of uh multi-facet for me um and i sit on a couple of committees and and so on as well yeah right so it's really cool because there's like a creative side of you there's a technical side of you and there's the identity around being an indigenous uh, from Central Australia. From Central Australia, so mm. and so, like maybe tell us a little bit more. Like how did like how did you bring all of these together? Like with being a technologist, consultant, and a software developer. Uh, to be honest, it's kind of been an accidental, organic, growing thing. I'm not sure if it's perfectly kind of synthesized into one um, identity just yet. <laughs> um, I forgot to mention, I also um, do poetry um, wow. and have been fortunate to be published and have some of my work in schools, which blows my mind. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I guess that that's the best way to describe it, though, Junie, is... Um, it's it's an organic process that I don't necessarily go out of my way to sort of um, work on or shape. 
these um, different aspects of my life. Um, these are just things that I've been interested in um, or have found a way to express myself in. And uh, they have just kind of um, developed over time uh, simultaneously, but <clears throat> removed from each other. Um, sometimes they do overlap, which is always um, a, a benefit. So I worked on the a poetry festival in Alice Springs um, a few years ago when COVID was happening. They had to shift the festival to a digital platform because obviously people couldn't go to it. So that was a really unique challenge, but uh, um, a way in which to kind of intersect those two aspects of my life. That's rare, though. That doesn't usually happen. Were you the one behind the scenes setting up the digital platform? Um, so, no, no, it was it was kind of um, different um, aspects to it. They had a website. They had um, uh, the producers of the the festival who came up with really cool ideas, and they just asked for me as a software developer to come in and um, uh, realize these ideas that they had. So. Yeah, basically, um, they gave me a little bit of creative license in how they would look and feel. Mm. Um, but essentially, they were coming up with the really cool ways in which people could engage with poetry still, but from their desktop. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, like, you know, it, that happened during COVID in 2020. And so everyone was online. Um, in 2020, I was actually living in the Northern Territory. So I was in Darwin. And um I think there's also this perception that in remote places, there isn't much innovation happening, which mm. I'd like to say no, <laughs> but it's also a place where like, you know, sometimes the creativity has to happen. Um, can you maybe just like for people who probably either never lived in remote areas, have an idea as to what it was like to then transfer something that was usually physically um like an event that was uh, in a physical space to now an event that was in a digital uh, platform, uh, especially in an area that is remote? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think, yeah, it, it it's a tough one because there's remote. And I think a, a lot of the times when um, folks are thinking about remote or rural, they're thinking about contexts in which at another town or a major regional hub might be an hour or so away. Um, Alice Springs itself is a tiny town. And even though it is um, a regional hub, uh, it doesn't have all the facilities and services and um, and, and so on that a, a major city does. It itself is quite remote and um, uh, has a lot of challenges to live and um, do creative exploration in. I think sometimes those challenges, though, kind of, that they do breed innovation. They do um, foster that kind of mentality of um, creativity and working within those constraints. So I think that's why something like the Red Dirt Festival um, has been so successful over the however many years it's been running um, because it's it fosters that creativity. They're thinking outside of the normal kind of um, poetry style so even when you go to the festival in person which I've been to as well it's not just a hey come and read your poetry they're thinking about really cool ways um, of engaging with uh, the community and bringing them into that um, poetic process 
because I think for the average person, poetry is this lofty kind of thing that happens um, yeah. with artsy types, but it's it's really powerful. It can be a really powerful um, mode of expression. Um, and I was actually at one of the cafes um, where I um, did some poetry performance, but it wasn't just a, hey, read my poem. We had, as part of that festival, um, they put me in a kind of a booth and basically folks would come up to me and um, basically tell me a little bit about their lives. And I had, I think, two minutes to five minutes or so to write a poem about them and for them. So, you know, it's 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 not just innovation in a technology sense, but also in how we can engage with community and, and um, the world. Yeah. And it sounds a lot like, you know, creating the experience, whether it's digitally or physically like how do you create that experience where you can still like um have messages being vehicled uh through different formats and means and create sort of that experience that people can interact with no matter their geographical location so like you mentioned right the difference between remote rural rural um and and especially in a in a space like australia you know rural remote is very different like yeah you don't just go an hour away, like you're going hundreds of kilometers away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's quite a different experience. And you're right, it does, like it is challenging, but it also breeds a lot of that creative space uh, to think outside the box to still allow for people to um, open up. And I think there was a, a big music festival around that same time in Arnhem Land that went digital. And so it actually mm. opened up to whole international uh, world of the kind of music and arts um, that was that was uh, out in the northern in in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, um, and so based on all of these like uh, multifaceted that you mentioned that you described earlier, like what's the biggest barrier you find you experience with technology? Uh, I, I think there's a few challenges. Um, primarily for me has been the experience of uh, getting into the technology sector. Uh, I'm not sure what it would be like for um, young people, um, young marginalized folks these days. Um, but in my experience, the, the education that I had positioned me in such a way that these were kind of things that weren't for me. Um, can, you I'm, tell, can you tell us a little <clears throat> bit more about that, what you've mentioned? Yeah, so I for the, so some of the examples I have are um, when I was doing maths, for example, and um, I was working on uh, like geometry. We're talking about, you know, 3D shapes and um uh, and so on and uh one of the math teachers said that i was struggling because i was indigenous and indigenous people aren't good at uh three dimensions <laughs> are you joking? are you for real? Wow. um so it's little it's little things like that but you know compounded over time and in different kind of um situations uh we had computer, you know, computer studies and and so on, but it's it's 
the framing of the way these things are taught are <clears throat> this is an objective kind of computer science and it won't change depending on who they're engaging with. It's presented as, you know, the ultimate universal way in which you have to um, experience it. You can't change the structure of it when really the, the you know, the pedagogy of these topics are malleable. They should be changing based on who is engaging with these topics. But, you know, uh, it's it blows my mind that in context which, you know, um, there's a significant proportion of Aboriginal people, Indigenous people, that the way in which these uh, concepts were taught were, were still very Western, very computer science without any kind of um, thought to how they could engage young Indigenous people, um, young uh, people from very different backgrounds. You know, Darwin had a, a big refugee population as well and Southeast Asian population. Um, so, yeah, it kind of blows my mind that they weren't really thinking about how they could shape the the teaching of these um, courses to that type of demographic. So I think that that was a, a massive challenge for me. Um, and just the, I, I think there's also kind of that um, if you tell a lie enough times, you start to believe it kind of mentality. And I think what was in the media, particularly in those days, was this idea that Aboriginal people, especially in the Northern Territory, and especially from Alice Springs, we're starting to see that again. Um, you you had this mentality that we are just losers. We can't achieve things. We can't be computer scientists. We're footy players or artists. There's no there's no science that we our brains can comprehend. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's fascinating, and I think because I've I've had the experience of living in the Northern Territory, um, I shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, because of those kind of stigma and the stereotypes around that. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it comes from people who are meant to be educators uh, mm. to be able to, you know, let people like yourself from a younger age dream the impossible. So then what made you stand out? Like what made you continue your course? Uh, it's It's been kind of a long time coming back around to it journey um because i've had you know various other kind of start and stop career trajectories i was a public servant for far too long um i <laughs> i worked in kind of youth development community development for a period of time as well um and i think those to some extent are, are very valuable contributions it's just not I just did not find them fulfilling and they weren't I guess I, I never felt like they were using the full part of my brain <laughs> <laughs> um not to say that though they aren't challenging in their own way I just felt like there were better ways in which we could achieve the things that we wanted to achieve um so I've actually come into tech quite late um, in in a, in a way, um, in a professional setting, I've I've come into it, you know, in my early thirties, late twenties, early thirties, um, and uh, you know, this sounds terrible, but I think the thing that kind of interested me a lot about it was that I could engage as a technologist, as a person in tech, without uh, without 
I guess, putting my Indigenous identity at the forefront of it. I can work in, I can work on code without thinking about all the traumas and politics and um, issues happening outside of that context. It's just the code. There's no people in front of me when I'm working on code. And that has a certain sort of romantic, romantic kind of um, feeling to it that um, I'm not carrying that trauma on my back when I'm, you know, coding. It's just me and numbers and letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Numbers and letters that you're good at compared to what your professor yeah. said that you weren't. Um, and and I and I really like, you know, the fact that you even if you started in your in your 30s, like I'm I I started in my 30s and I don't I'm not I'm not a technical person, but um the elements of the non uh, linear pathways that you went through have been the reasons why you were able to look at technology as a way for you to, you know, implement sort of maybe as well that creative side, even if you adding, if you're coding uh, as part of that. Because I know that when we met, you were talking about um, working on this project, uh, creating emojis, but it was indigenous focus to be able to um, show like you know the expressions and the cultures within uh, the groups of people that you identify with and I do remember that you were sort of in that moment of like but how do you bring in that sort of western side and at the same time like stay true and authentic to that culture um, mm. it'd be interesting to sort of hear like where what was that journey like for you Yeah, uh, I, I think I have the benefit of not being involved too much with the design perspective um, and the design process of the app itself. Um, and I could kind of leverage the existing design of the, um, you know, the cousin app to, to build this one. Um, but in saying that, there were, um, you know, a group of uh Cadage elders and young people and artists uh, that worked on the the new emojis that are part of this set, the Cadage emoji set. Uh, and I think they had to kind of reconcile the, those types of questions for sure, um, because in uh, from conversations I've had with the Indigemoji team, it was a, a an issue that they had to kind of reconcile as well. And they landed on this idea of let's use um, Indigenous drawings, we'll use, you know, the Aranda, the art style and so on, but we'll give them a shine, we'll give them kind of a 3D appearance, we'll give them shading and, and so on, so that they still carry that Indigenous um, iconography. However, they look and feel as though they were made by Apple or made by Google. They'll still have that, you know, sleekness to them so that young people, when they engage with the app, it doesn't feel like, you know, something that their great greats or whatever would be using. Uh -huh. They wanted to be able to, you know, express their identity in a new but kind of old way. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And so has this um been released yet or? It is out now on Apple and uh, Google Play. Okay, good. That's awesome. We'll have to check it out. And so um, imagine you had dinner with the big boss of a company. Uh, what conversation would you have with this person about why they need to redesign uh, their products or technology uh, with you in mind and what's in it for them? Mm -hmm. 
I've been thinking about this question a lot, actually, because um, I think it can go from really big scale down to very you know specific product. And I like to kind of um, start big and go small like that. Because yeah. I think fundamentally a lot of the world is designed by folks who don't look like you and I, Jeannie, and who don't have you and I in mind and other people like us. <laughs> yeah. And I think when you look at the way in which the world is now and the way in which products, um, you know, are, are made from, you know, raw material through to the consumer, there's a lot of problems in the way in which we're consuming and thinking about technology, thinking about products. And I think we need to, this is, you know, a very political philosophical point, but I think we need to start changing the way in which we're, we're thinking about that entire life cycle of products, about um, consumer engagement and, and all, all of those different um, facets. We need to, we need to start disrupting the way we think about that um, because uh you know, a lot of the issues we see in the world, in um, the environment, come from these assumptions by people who don't have folks like you and I in the room to say, what about this? What about that? So I, I think with a boss, <laughs> coming back to that, you know, smaller scale, they might be asking, well, well who cares? That doesn't really matter. You know, we've got our bottom line. Um, but I, I think that that's part of that shift that needs to happen. And I think it's happening a little bit now is what happens to the climate, what happens to Aboriginal people who have been, I guess, I mean, if you look around the world, the Indigenous communities around the world are generally, you know, in the areas that are still pristine um, nature, still pristine sort of rainforests and, and so on. And they're kind of the last bastion of, you know, preserving our planet um so i think that's kind of it sounds really kind of uh hyperbolic but it's 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 a conversation that needs to happen you know at the ceo level that the way in which we're you know um, mining raw materials and so on will have a slow uh, impact on the the bottom line as you know climate change uh happens more and more it's going to start impacting on um the the bottom line and the way in which we um manufacture products and sell products mm, yeah 100 and uh you're right because um you know not designing products in a way where you're only focusing on the things you know and forgetting to count or to to identify what you don't know um mm like actually will impact your bottom line over time because eventually mm. like if your consumers can't find themselves in what you're providing them they're gonna go elsewhere <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if anything nowadays especially right like you have a lot more people who are like well if I can't see something that fits me I'm just gonna go on my own and do it and so yeah. you see like a lot of more um, startups and entrepreneurs like you and I were like well you know, let's let's actually give you a reality of what the world actually looks like. And 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 like and the fact that, you know, you mentioned a CEO should have a way to look at it as beyond the politics of it. At the end of the day, like it's their opportunity. It's your opportunity for seeing that you can profit out of that 
that there are people who are willing to actually say, you know, if you design this for me, you actually have a whole market that you can tap yeah. that you're not tapping into. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it also extends to not just products as well. Um, it's kind of the processes and and um, our policies, procedures, standards. Um, it's the entire life cycle because um, absolutely there is kind of that um, front facing aspect of um, engaging, um, engaging, uh, you know, indigenous people, other, other non-white groups of people. Because <laughs> um, you, you see, you see it in say a, a Disney product, you know, you know, the Marvel movies, for example, are a classic example of um, having uh, different cultures and, and so on represented. But the, I, I think that needs to also be reflected in, you know, the management in the the um, the people who hold power, the decision makers. That needs to be reflected in in those kind of positions as well. And that's when you'll really start to see systems that um, become more robust as well, because they're not kind of just in an echo chamber reflecting the same tired old ideas. But you're bringing in different backgrounds and experiences into shaping um, the entire life cycle of these products or um, these services. Mm, yeah, 100%. I 100% agree. Hence the reason why I'm doing these podcast series, <laughs> writing people like yourselves to sort of shine a light into the conversation that seems to be missed out. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It has to be at a point where it's the whole life cycle. It's the processes um, and it's people like you who defy, you know, the very world in which you're being told you're not good at numbers, so you can never become a computer scientist or you can never get into the computer science. But then look at you, you know, and yeah, even if the path was not linear, like you still got into it in technology and, you know, you're coding and but you're also bringing like your own perspectives as part of what you can actually develop. Um, into that and, and then it goes to things like you know recently um, hearing about driverless cars who've got this thing mm. machine vision who are like not recognizing people with dark skin and you're thinking <laughs> it's actually going to be something that's going to be out in the streets like what is going on like how is this still a problem how are we still not thinking about better representation and designing things like this that could be pretty lethal and fatal into for, for people's lives and society in general. Mm. So, yeah, so truly appreciate like your, like the, the perspective you've, the perspective you've given. Um, is there anything that, is there a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked you as part of this conversation? No, I don't, I don't know. That's such a tough. <laughs> yeah, no, what am I working on? I, uh, I guess that's a. I guess that's a question. Maybe what? What's? What's? What yeah. am I working on that I can talk about? Yeah, go ahead. What are you working on? Uh, working on a, a research proposal for a PhD, um, through ANU. So fingers crossed. Yes. Uh. And that will be actually, uh, I'm hoping to make it a creative thesis, um, a creative output rather than, you know, a technical, technological kind of PhD. Um, so that should be quite challenging. Uh, I've got uh, two 
apps, which are still kind of that indigenous focused and founded um, perspective. So um, yeah, they'll be coming out probably later this year. So yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more about those three things? So your PhD and those two apps? Yep. So, uh, oh, yep. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think part of coming back to that idea of life cycle and, um, you know, um, disrupting the modes of thinking. I think part of that is also incumbent upon us who are kind of, you know, taking the first few steps into these spaces. Um, and that's not to kind of, um, say that there haven't been those before us, but, you know, we're, we're carrying that tradition boldly forward. Um, I think part of that is, how do we create the stories and narratives that inspire the next generations as well? Um, and that's that's what I've been really thinking about uh, with a PhD is how do, if we look at science fiction as um, a mode to communicate, you know, utopias or dystopias, um, but we also look at the, uh, the artifacts within these stories and how they've shaped the way in which our technology exists now um, and even the way in which we engage with our technologies now, how do we embed Indigenous narratives, um, ontologies, epistemologies, um, so, you know, ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of knowing and ways of learning into science fiction, into our visions of the future, so that young Aboriginal people, even young non-Indigenous people, can read these stories and really imagine these futures as kind of a blueprint for um, creating the technologies and the 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 modes of expression and modes of engagement with technologies um, in the not too distant future. So that's what I that's what really is um, something I'm thinking about with my PhD is how do I write these stories? Um, so you know, thinking about that indigi futurism, indigenous futurism, um, cyberpunk. How do we punk these systems? How do we disrupt these systems so that it's better for everyone? That is so um, cool. <laughs> when you said cyberpunk, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now go on. So what about the apps? Um, so the apps are kind of part of that that process for me. Um one of the the projects that I'm working on with the the same Indigimoji collective, um, we're looking at doing a weather app. Um, it'll be a web-based app, not a phone app, um, that uses Aranda, um, again, ontologies. So our way of thinking about the world, our way of engaging with the world, using Aranda um, ontologies in translating scientific weather systems back into Aranda. So um, it, it's still in the you know early prototyping stages. Um, but we do hope to have that complete by the end of this year. Um, and there's some other apps kind of along the same um, vein as well, but there's they're still in the negotiation phase. So, <laughs> but um, some very cool ideas emerging from Central Australia, I think. This is such an exciting thing to hear um, because, yeah, again, you know, having lived in the Northern Territory. There was this constant, constant, constant conversation of like, where are the indigenous folks in tech? Where are the indigenous indigenous folks in user experience design? 
And like, and you know, it was reaching out to even university in the Charles Darwin University in Darwin, um, reaching out to people who worked in, <clears throat> sorry, the human computer design um, uh, sector or faculty of the university. And, you know, you're the one who popped up as like the only person that they could name. And so to hear you say things like, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of the tech space in Central Australia is again, fantastic to hear because it proves and it shows that there is a need and there's also an opportunity to be able to fill mm. the gap. But also it's just a matter of people need to think a bit broader, like removing those blind spots and asking yourselves mm. like, who are we missing at the table or who haven't we thought of? Because that'll help as well to realize and open perspectives beyond just like, you know, a question of ethnicity or culture, but even geographical, like to have to think, yeah. like, hey, is it possible that in a space like that, there could be a lot of innovation that breeds from that? And then it's just a matter of injecting funds into that area. So I'm really excited to to see how it all goes and good luck as well with your PhD thesis proposal. Hopefully it comes because it'll definitely benefit from generations to come. Really appreciate mm -hmm. all your knowledge and your story. And uh, I hope to talk to you very soon. Thank you. This episode of Uncover Untapped Markets featured the inspiring and thought-provoking Matthew Heffernan. I'm your host, Junie. Connect with Propel Innovations on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Propel underscore UX and read my blog posts on Medium at JuniBP. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with other business leaders. Want to be a guest on our show? Reach us at hello at propelinnovations.co. Leave us a review so we can unveil more stories like in this episode. Hit that subscribe button to stay tuned and keep uncovering untapped markets.